0: Hello, dudes, dudettes, nerds, and geeks. My name is Lloyd Cuso, and today I will be talking about one of the greatest superhero TV shows to ever be released. To keep this specific, I'm only talking about live-action superhero shows. Um, so, when Avengers was released... There was a character in it named Phil Coulson. You may know that he appeared later appeared in a TV series called Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now before I get into why Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is so great, let me ask you this. What makes a superhero story great? Is it the specific adaptation of a story from the comics? Is it the hero themselves? Is it the world around them? Or is it the struggles that they face? Well, ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's the emotions that the story ev- evokes. When you watch Endgame... Spoiler alert here. I'll give you five seconds to click off if you haven't watched Endgame. If, if you haven't, what are you doing on this one, on this video? Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. At the end of Endgame, everyone probably knows this by now, simply because it's one of the most popular superhero movies of all time. Tony Stark sacrifices himself to save the Earth. Now, due to everything Tony has gone through up to this point, this sacrifice is both heartbreaking and fulfilling. His character from the beginning was a pompous jerk who only thought of himself. Over the course of the movies, we see him become a hero. And, of course, his character arc is finally complete, with him making the ultimate sacrifice and giving his own life to save the lives of countless others. Now, what emotion did you feel when you saw... Tony Stark die. There's not one. You feel sad, you feel amazed, you feel like he's like he's full, he is complete, he is uh, amazing. He you feel so many mixes of different things. You feel hopeful for a better future. You feel uh, you feel dumbstruck when you first watch it. It's like You can't move, it's just something just happened and it's like it's tearing at you, but it's also building you up. Now, I'm not saying everything has to evoke that exact amount of emotions in order to be a great story. What's so great about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is that it doesn't take a singular character from the comics or set of characters... And adapt them accurately. And while that sounds bad, what I mean is because because this show went under the radar for so long, they were given free reign to do what they want. They weren't necessarily held back by the comics or the movies. In fact, about halfway through the series, they just kind of stopped trying to fit in with the MCU at all and became their own beautiful masterpiece. Now, let me start at the beginning. So, Season 1 covers a vast amount of material. This season starts with the formation of the main team of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. This being Coulson, Fitz, Gemma Simmons, Ward... And Sky. Now, Sky started out as sort of a criminal, so to speak, and she was recruited by Coulson, who led the team. Throughout the first season, we keep hearing about how Coulson was brought back from the dead via this mysterious. Whatever. We don't really know what brought him back. All we know is that he went to Tahiti, and he says it's a magical place. Now, throughout the first season, it's sort of a slow build until we reach the magical place. Episode 11 finally really gets down to the, the nitty gritty of what happened to Coulson. And it, it throughout the throughout the following episodes we see the results of different reveals and different revelations following the following the next few episodes we get to beginning of the end, which is the finale of season one. We learn that Ward was actually a HYDRA agent infiltrating the team. And he was the spy. Now, they had known that there was a mole. They just didn't know who it was. And so, we know, you know, it's obviously not Sky because she's the point of view we have for what this, what it's like in S.H.I.E.L.D. She's our a fish-out-of-water character who's just learning about everything so that it can be introduced to the viewer. And at the end of the season, uh, Fitz goes through a lot of trauma, and in the beginning of the second season, things are a lot different. As the seasons progress, it goes from more of a spy-crime-drama- with supernatural elements to a straight-up superhero, I suppose superhero spy drama is the correct term. So throughout the second season, my biggest problem with the first season was bigotry. A lot of the characters didn't like superhumans, they thought they were dangerous. And a lot of this stuff stemmed from them not understanding what superhumans were or what they did. And so, you know, people fear what they don't understand. That's a common theme in a lot of stories. And I think that season two really deals with this very well. So Skye, throughout season two, learns about her heritage. She learned we follow the mysterious writing on the wall. So Colson, due to his experience in the Tahiti um, project or experiment or whatever you want to call it, the the device that brought him back, he was injected with blood from a Cree. Now this is starting to make him scratch this writing into this wall and this eventually we figure out it's actually a map now in some later episodes we learn Sky is an Inhuman. She gets exposed to the Terrigen Mist which is a mist from the comics which activates Inhuman's abilities. Now so she goes to a place called Afterlife, where Inhumans uh, are, stay as sort of a sanctuary, a last bastion of hope for them to control their powers and live safely away from humanity which fears them. Now, we meet Sky's mother, and we see that she is caring for all of the different Inhumans there. Of course, things seem off, because... I mean, whenever you meet a a relative who's been gone for a while, there's obviously going to be some sort of plot. Um, Eventually, we learn that, basically, she's the bad guy. And she wants to unleash the Terrigen mist on the entirety of humanity. Now, this will turn regular humans to stone, and... Inhumans will break free of their stone casing, and this would basically make the Inhumans the sole population of the Earth. Of course, they managed to stop Jiaying, Sky's mom, but Coulson loses his arm. Now, this was first introduced, and I thought it was going to be like, oh, he'll get a cybernetic replacement, and everything's going to be like it never happened. But then season three happens. We go back to a lot of crazy stuff. So Fitz and Simmons. Fitz obviously is in love with Jim Simmons because that was clear from season one. Now, throughout the second season, they're separated and Fitz is going through... Uh, therapy because he was deprived without oxygen for a while at the end of the first season so then he goes through a lot of stuff to help himself get back on track he befriends this guy named Mac who's a mechanic who works with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team now in season 3 uh, at the end of season 2 Fitz, Fitz was talking to Simmons and he asked her out on a date but then he leaves and then Simmons gets sucked into this monolith thing and this monolith, we, they don't know what it does or where it came from. So, throughout Season 3, we learn that the monolith was property of Hydra. And Hydra is being re- rebuilt by Ward. Um, so Ward wants the monolith, of course. He wants to rebuild Hydra and be the top dog. Of course, some of the Terrigen myths did get out to humanity. And so, throughout Season 3 is when it really gets good. Near, let's see, probably see, probably Season 3, Episode 11. So, after the whole events of Maveth, Ma- Maveth is the planet that Jimmy gets stranded on. She falls in love with this astronaut dude who was stranded there as well. He gets possessed by an ancient entity that um, that Hydra worships. And basically they have to kill him in order to escape. And after Ward assassinated Coulson, the love of Coulson's life, Coulson gets revenge by killing Ward. Now, I was fully expecting this to be an action movie type Deal where you know he gets revenge and that's the end of it. However, we slowly start to see that Coulson doesn't feel any better after getting revenge on it, on Ward. He he felt like he was gonna feel better, but then it was just wrong. He shouldn't have killed Ward. That just he's just stooping down to his level. We meet a Inhuman named Yo Yo. Or, well, she's nicknamed Yo-Yo by Mac because she can, she can run super fast in one direction, but she immediately bounces back to where she was. So, essentially, she sort of allies herself with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team. And what is interesting about how she is written is she is a Catholic. Now, it is very rare that Christianity is written well in superhero shows or just superhero stories in general. Heck, they barely touch on Kurt, Kurt, Va- Kurt Wagner being Catholic in X2, and X2 was pretty weak as far as X-Men movies go. Uh, granted, it was better than X3. Everyone knows that anything is better than X3, even the ter- terrible Green Lantern movie. But that's beside the point. The point is, Christianity is hard to write in a superhero setting. I think the best example of Christianity being written extremely well in a superhero setting is Netflix's Daredevil, which, that's a topic for another time. So, basically, what makes this interesting is Mac used to be Christian, as is revealed when he encounters Yo-Yo and talks to her. Essentially, he sort of fell away, and then she slowly brings him back to Christianity. Now, if you're not Christian, and you don't really care about that, then that's not a selling point for you to try this show. Now, when we finally get to the finale of, of this, we see at the, be- at the beginning of the episode um, 11, Bouncing Back, episode 11 of season 3, we meet Yo-Yo, but at the very beginning of the episode, we see this Quinjet floating in space, and we see this cross necklace floating in the ship, and then it, and a, some person in a shield jacket, and the ship explodes. Now, Obviously, they introduce Yo-Yo and she has a cross necklace and allies herself with a shield, so we're like, "Oh, she's gonna die, because this is showing this is set. The, that scene was set uh, several days after, several days after this episode. So the next several episodes lead up to that finale, episode 22 of season three, Ascension. Now they totally play with the viewers' expectations of who's gonna die by throwing around the the cross necklace to a bunch of different people. First it ends up with Mac, then Mac gives it back to Yo-Yo, then Yo-Yo gives it back to Mac, Mac gives it to Sky, then Sky gives it back to Mac, then Mac gives it to Sky again, then lo and behold, someone else grabs it. Because they're willing to make a sacrifice and they die in the finale. I'm not going to say who this is because I don't want to spoil things. But it's a very heartbreaking sacrifice. Which leads to Sky leaving S.H.I.E.L.D. to become a vigilante. Which leads into Season 4. One of their best seasons. Now Season 4 actually introduces... It, it introduces a... Very, very interesting character from the comics. And that is Robbie Reyes, Ghost Rider. So Robbie Rez is an interesting Ghost Rider in the comics. Because instead of being possessed by a spirit of vengeance, he is possessed by the ghost of his dead uncle. Of course, things are very different in this version. Because his uncle is alive and he's still the Ghost Rider. So obviously the origin is different. Uh, He believes he made a deal with the devil, and that is what gave him his powers. However, that is not the case, as revealed in uh, Season 4, Episode 6, The Good Samaritan. So, the main big plot of Season 4 is there's this scientist who's friends with uh, Fitz, and Fitz and him are working on a Android called Ada, and she is a life model decoy. However, she soon becomes extremely dangerously intelligent. After they take down um, one of the villains, I will not reveal who the villain is because that's kind of a, a reveal. Ada then becomes the, the antagonist of the season. We then go through several, I suppose, miniature seasons that take place within this season because there are several different arcs that happen throughout this season, but then they all tie in together at the end of this season. What's great about this show is not the plot. It's the characters. The characters are so complex. Coulson is this sort of veteran shield agent, leader character. Uh, But he has a very, very compassionate soft side. And he's clearly in love with Agent May, and Agent May is clearly in love with him, but they never really talk about it. Coulson feels as though he has a duty to protect Skye, because she's sort of like a daughter to him. And he feels as though he... All the weight of the world is on him. Skye, of course, lived most of her life without her parents. When she finally meets her dad, he's sort of a maniac who transforms into this monster thing and winds up having to kill his wife, Zhai Ying, who was a supervillain. Um, and Skye sort of views Coulson as her surrogate father. And she views the S.H.I.E.L.D. team as her family. Of course, Fitz and Simmons are the sort of will-they-won't-they they couple of the of the series. And their love story is insanely well-written. I'm not usually one for live-action TV show love stories, because usually that ends up with, with badly-written soap opera-type stuff. I'm looking at you, Arrowverse. But anyway, we get to... Mac, and Mac is one of the best characters, because as we as we see him grow as a character, he goes from a bigot who hates superhumans and inhumans and thinks they're dangerous, to being the sort of older brother Sky, uh, that Skye never had. And he sort of protects her and sort of feels a responsibility to be there for her, and help her along as she learns to control her inhuman human powers. And slowly we see him take more and more of a leadership role in the team. As he sort of grows to be a better person than he thought he ever could be. Bobby and Hunter are really... Really complex characters, because they have this sort of, uh, I suppose, ex-wife, ex-husband relationship, which then leads to them falling back in love, and they sort of retire as as S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And there's this really wonderfully written goodbye. There's no dialogue, it's just... It's a spy's goodbye, and it's one of the, one of the saddest scenes in the show. One of, because there's, there's one other that just really hits you hard. May is this r- tough, grizzled, kick butt, spy woman who takes no nonsense. She's just like, I say it as it is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take down anybody who's threatening humanity and stuff. But deep down, she cares for them all. Like, she's sort of like, if you were to view the team as a family, you have Coulson being the dad, Sky being the daughter, um, Mac being the, Sky's older brother, uh, Fitz and Simmons being separate, I guess. And May being the mother figure for Sky. During the finale of season four, all the different arcs come together in this crazy amalgamation of insane plot points. And it has a very well written ending. Season five is very, very odd. Because at the end of season four, the team gets kidnapped and sent to space by mysterious people. And that's how the season ends. In season five, we pick back up and figure out what happened. So, you see, there's this guy named Enoch. He's this sort of, like, guardian of humanity or whatever. He's sort of, well, more like a watcher, like Uatu. But basically, he will intervene if there is an extinction-level event. So because there's an extinction-level event, he sends the team into the future where they are going to have to face all these different crazy stuff in order to save humanity. The entire first half of the season, we see them facing off against a completely messed up society, a dystopian space apocalypse, if you will. And we meet this character named Deke. Now, Deke is very important. Mind you, he's a total jerk, but he is important. Deke is sort of our guide into this crazy future. He plays everybody and looks out for himself. Typical Han Solo type character. Except he takes way longer to be nice. So, throughout the first half of the season, we figure out that, that Fitz was not taken with them. We eventually learn, in an episode called Rewind, that Fitz was taken custody by the government because they have thought S.H.I.E.L.D. were the bad guys at the end of Season 4. So then, Fitz gets imprisoned... However, he makes a case that you know, he can save humanity because he needs to save the Shield team. So then they give him the resources he needs to try and basically figure out what happened to them. Throughout the next two episodes, we see his journey to saving the Shield team. We learn that there's this there's this kid. Now, We met this kid before, in season three. We meet this guy, he's an inhuman, who can see the future, the death of anyone he touches. But his daughter has a similar ability. She can see the future. But it's like she's living every moment of the future, the past all of her life at the same time. So she's hard to communicate with. So she expresses it through drawings. First it starts as kids' drawings, then beautiful sketches when she's older. And apparently she's the one who alerted Enoch that there's going to be an extinction-level event. And the reason Fitz was left behind was because he's the only one who could, who could save the S.H.I.E.L.D. team and bring them back. So throughout a crazy turn of events, they wind up bringing everybody back to the present. However, they now have the knowledge that the extinction-level event happens because Sky, who currently is going by Daisy ever since she learned her real name, is going to destroy the Earth with her inhuman powers. Now, they're trying to find a way to avoid this. And we also learn Coulson is dying. The Cree blood that was injected into him while it brought him back it sort of spent a lot of his energy and is spending a lot of his energy in a way that is killing him slowly. And when he was possessed by the Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance in season 4 he, it sort of quickened the process. And he's gonna die soon. So, they, they're trying to find a way to prevent that. But they're also trying to find a pre- way to prevent Quake from destroying the Earth. Daisy's codename as a vigilante was Quake. So, Yo-Yo loses her arms in a frightening event. They... Get attacked by this crazy Hydra secret agent lady. Throughout the next several episodes, we see Fitz and Simmons get married, which is a beautiful story. And we we also learn that Deke Deke is the one who picked out their rings because he gets stranded in the in the present day with with them after an incident in the future, and so. He picks out the rings for uh, Fitz and uh, Simmons for their wedding day. And he says he picked them out based on his grandparents' rings, which look the exact same way. Of course, as soon as he says this, the audience suddenly knows, oh, crud, he's their grandson. Of course, nobody else realizes this because nobody else knows this. Throughout the rest of the season, we see General Talbot, who... Uh, is a complicated character because he is extremely dedicated to the protection of the Earth. And he sometimes hates the S.H.I.E.L.D. team. Sometimes he works with them. Uh, he's just your typical government agent dude. However, he gets imbued with gravity powers. And becomes, well, Graviton from the comics. They eventually learn that he's the one who causes the destruction of the earth. it just gets finalized by Quake's attacks. However, they manage to stop him and prevent this and prevent the extinction of the earth. However, Fitz dies. Now, this isn't necessarily the end for Fitz, because how he found them in the future was, he cryogenically froze himself and then he woke up in the future that way he could get to them. So since they've prevented that future, he's still cryogenically frozen, but when they wake him, he will have no memory of any of the events that happened after he woke up in the future. So now there's two Fitzes: The one that died and also went to the future with them and helped them prevent that future. The one that is preparing to wake up in that future Because he still thinks that that future is going to happen. Time travel is confusing. Just bear with me. So basically at the end of season 5. Coulson decides to live his last few days at Tahiti. Which is kind of an odd choice. Like choosing the real Tahiti. Even though it shares the same name as the creepy thing that brought him back. I don't know. Anyway, so May decides to live with him for the rest of his days, which is about a week. Then, in season six, it starts the beginning of the end. There are seven seasons, so season six leads directly into season seven. In season six, it follows a little while after Coulson finally dies. And so May runs into a Coulson duplicate from some sort of portal or whatever, who is determined to destroy this weird entity that that he's been chasing throughout multiple dimensions for years on end. So, meanwhile, Fitz and Enoch are sort of stranded. Apparently, Fitz was woken up from his cryogenic slumber, and him and Enoch are stranded uh, on a planet of gambling that's essentially an entire planet of Las Vegas. Um, And so, essentially, he's trying to find a way to refreeze himself so that he can get to the future, because he still doesn't know that future was avoided. So, we also learn that when the future was prevented, Deke did not stop existing, Due to his, he had a theory about timelines and alternate realities, meaning that he would still be alive. So, and apparently he was right. He's actually a certifiable genius, he's just also an idiot. Anyway, as the story progresses, the Chronicoms, the same race as Enoch, uh, believe that they need to change tactics. They need to be more aggressive and actively shape the future. Because their race is going to die out. So they kidnap Fitz and Simmons. Who are reunited. But then eventually uh, are tortured. And get basically information extracted from their brains. So that the uh, Chronicoms can use it to help their cause. Now Sarge, this alternate version of. Coulson, it seems, is extremely, extremely dangerous now. He's chasing this entity that he won't really reveal who it is, and eventually he allies himself with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team. Now, of course, this is only an alliance of convenience because he really, really, really hates them. So, Fitz and Simmons team up with this lady named Izel, who is helping them get back to Earth. Now, eventually we learn that Sarge is actually hunting that lady because she destroys entire dimensions. So, apparently, he's been chasing her for thousands of years. Meaning that he's been alive for thousands of years. Now... Fitz and Simmons eventually get reunited with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team, and in a crazy climax, Coulson, or well, Sarge Coulson, the alternate version, it turns out he's actually a duplicate of Coulson that was created when Coulson shut down and destroyed the three monoliths in a previous season. Now, Coulson then, in a climactic battle, or Sarge Coulson, in a climactic battle, faces off against Melinda May. Now, I'm going to stop here as far as revealing stuff, because suffice to say, if I go any further, it won't be worth watching, because you'll know everything. So, if you think this show sounds interesting... Just keep in mind, it is non-canon. It is not part of the MCU anymore. Now, of course, it could be. You could think of it as part of the MCU, thanks to Loki making the multiverse real. So, perhaps this is just another timeline, another part of the multiverse. Now, back onto the question at the beginning. What makes a superhero show good? What makes a superhero story enjoyable? And I think it's the same for every story. The characters. The heart of any story. The very crux of any story is the characters. There is no story without characters. It is just a setting in which to place your plot points. But the plot points don't happen without those characters. Just look at Star Wars. If Palpatine didn't exist, would Anakin have turned to the dark side? No, more than likely not. Or what about, we could look at the Avengers. If Nick Fury didn't exist, would the Avengers ever have it first assembled? No, maybe not. Or maybe they would have. You never know. That's the big thing about characters. Every character plays a key part in the story, no matter how minor they are. But when you have characters that play such a big role in the story, you know, the protagonists and the antagonists, you really have to make sure there's substance to what they are and what they believe. Let's just refer to one of the greatest animated series in existence in order to compare good writing with bad writing. The two shows I will be comparing is Avatar The Last Airbender Zuko <sighs> and The Arrowverse's Oliver Queen. Now, I don't care how much you love The Arrowverse. You can't deny that Arrow is a slut. Plain and simple. One day he's like, I'm a superhero. I can't can't be with you. Then the next day he's like, let's do it. And then the next day he's like, it's too dangerous. I can't be with you. It's such this back and forth thing for like so long. And yeah, I know, he finally gets married and he's faithful and everything, but for so long, it's this back-and-forth stupid thing of of I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and it's, it's just this... It's like the writers couldn't make up their mind. They wanted to keep teasing you with relationships because they think that's what makes a good story. But now let's look at Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. From the very, from the very beginning, we see him as an antagonist. But then he becomes sort of a sympathetic antagonist. Then he becomes a flat-out anti-villain. Then he becomes an anti-hero. Then he becomes a hero. So let's look at the facts at the beginning. Zuko wants to capture the Avatar so he can return and be reinstated as Prince of the Fire Nation. He feels as though he doesn't measure up and he's not good enough for his dad. Or that his dad doesn't really care about him. He has been through trauma after what happened that gave him his scar. The only person who ever believed in him or cared about him is Iroh. Who left the Fire Nation just to keep him company, just to make sure he was okay. Those are the facts that we know at the beginning of the series in Season 1. As Zuko interacts with all of our main characters, we see what makes him do what he does, why he is the way he is. Throughout Season 2, we see him gradually see more and more of what the Fire Nation is doing to people and what he's been doing to people, to the point where... He actually just becomes a normal citizen of the Earth Kingdom and just wants to live his life... there. But then when he comes face to face with the chance to take down the Avatar and, and be back with his dad again, it, he has to choose between the two... the two people in his life that he thinks mean the most. Should he go with the father that exiled him just for talking out of turn and then burned his face in front of a crowd at a a public duel, essentially? Or should he stay with the person who's looked after him since day one and would give anything to keep him safe and would give anything for him to realize who he really is? Ultimately... He betrays that person who's cared for him since day one. And he goes back to his father. Throughout this, though, he realizes what he has done wrong. Why he is the way he is. And what is right and what is wrong. His sense of morality had been skewed by the view that he was taught when he grew, as he grew up. When he was a teenager, though, he eventually, he spoke out of turn, then he was exiled. He was so determined to return to his quote-unquote home that he couldn't see. He was blind to all of the failures and disasters caused by his home, quote-unquote, and by his father. He did not realize that he was part of the problem he was part of the villains essentially he was hurting people in the same way that his dad hurt him but then after he experienced what they experienced when he returns home his home isn't home it's just it's just another exile only this time he's exiled from What's good? He's exiled from the people who actually cared about him. When he finally makes the right choice, he actually chooses, he gets the chance to kill his dad and end all the failures and and problems. But, as he states, that's not his destiny. That's the Avatar's destiny. In this moment, we see Zuko really realizes what destiny means. Iroh had been trying to teach him that. He'd been trying to teach him the meaning of life, the meaning of purpose and destiny for years. And it took him betraying Iroh to really realize what that meant. Of course, I'm... Summing things, things up very fast. But the point still stands. A well-written character feels real. You will cry for them. You will laugh with them. You will hurt with them. That is why. Season 7. Episode 9 has written rings. It has run rings and rings and rings upon rings around Star Wars. No, I'm not saying Star Wars as a whole. I'm saying Star Wars' biggest flaw. Um, not the sequel trilogy. That's not its biggest flaw. Its biggest flaw that it's always had, is what I mean. Its biggest flaw it's always had is how they view droids. You ever seen a droid that's actually written well? I'm sad to say that the only one I can actually think of is Chopper. And even he had some flaws in how he was written. If I were to think of any others, I would be like, I guess, Roger? From the Lego Star Wars The Freemaker Adventures? But not everybody has seen that. It's probably a very niche Star Wars show. Not everybody's into it. And so... Androids have been badly written in a lot of things. I think the best written Android stuff is in stuff like Detroit Become Human, um, Lego Ninjago Masters of Spinjitzu, and of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as I was saying. In Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., there's this Chronicom named Enoch. He's become a protagonist since season five. Now, he's a chronocom is essentially a uh, android. They're a race of androids, and they are nigh immortal. There is an episode. If any of you have seen Star Wars Rebels then you can continue watching this video. Because in five seconds, I'm going to spoil a big thing in Star Wars Rebels. So just click off, if, click off if you haven't seen it. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. For those of you who have seen Star Wars Rebels, you know for a fact that Kanan gives his life to save the Rebels, to save the team, to save his family. Now, this is one of the deaths that has hit me the most when watching a story. If, if I recount the, the character deaths that have just hit and tugged at my heartstrings and made me just bawl and bawl and ball and sob because it's such a well-written, sad, heartbreaking death, that is near the top, if not at the top of the list. Kanan's death was so well written. But it's rare that you see a death of an android that is that well written, that makes you hurt that amount. Spoiler alert for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Okay. In episode nine of season seven of Agents of Shield, Enoch gives his life to save the team. The entire episode is just so well written. It runs, it it it, it runs rings upon rings upon spheres around around Star Wars droids and how they're written, and around anything droid-related or android-related. This is one of the most well written on screen androids in any story I have ever seen. It's one of the most amazing episodes in the entire series. And if you don't know if you'd like this show, watch this episode. And this will help you determine whether or not the show's worth a shot or not. Alright. That's it for this video. Hope you liked my little rant about... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and why it's worth a shot. What's good about it, what's bad about it. Well, I didn't really talk about what's bad about it because there isn't much bad about it. If anything, I guess the first season's a little slow on showing that superhumans aren't bad. That's all for today. See you, and keep watching.